0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 140 and we're going to take a closer look at the Boer prisoner of war camps as well as the next phase of the peace process with talks shifting back to Pretoria. First though, the issue of POWs. So the first large group of Boer prisoners were taken by the British at the Battle of Irlandslauchte on the 21st of October 1899. The army had failed to plan for prisoners because the idea was the Boers would be beaten in a few weeks. So why spend money on POW camps? The first 188 Boers taken at Elandsloot were temporarily housed with the naval guard in Simonstown on board the guard ship HMS Penelope. Several other ships were used as floating prisons until eventually permanent camps were established at Greenpoint, Cape Town, Bellevue and Simonstown. The English army base at Ladysmith in Natal was used between December 1900 and January 1902 but this was only a staging area. Another staging area was established at Ambilo south of Durban in Natal, where POWs would be placed on board ships and then routed to Cape Town. But it soon became clear that the Cape prisoner of war camps were targets for attacks and the British then shifted the burghers offshore. There were four main regions used to house Boer POWs, St Helena, Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, Bermuda and India. And as you'll hear in a moment, a few hundred were also taken to Portugal. During the war, The British captured around 56,000 Boer prisoners and eventually ran out of space in host countries. India was only used as a last resort after the other three main camps became overcrowded. Of course, the most feared of all of these was the camp in St Helena, but by the end of the war, disease was more rampant in other regions, mainly because of the climate. St Helena has a fairly benign climate, much cooler than Bermuda, Ceylon and India. One of the first contingents of Boers to arrive in St Helena included General Pete Cronier, who was captured along with thousands of his men after the Battle of Pardibar in February 1900. Cronier and 514 of his commander arrived on the island in the middle of the Atlantic after disembarking from the troop ship Milwaukee on the 27th of February of that year. Cronier had surrendered to Lord Roberts after being caught in the battle which shook the Free State Boers as Cronier was cornered with his powerful commando. Illustrating his arrival on the island of St Helena, Punch magazine published a cartoon of the general saluting the ghost of Napoleon and saying, same enemy, same result. Prior to the Boers' arrival, the governor of St Helena, R.A. Sterndale, had published a proclamation which read, his Excellency expresses the hope that the population will treat the prisoners of war with that courtesy and consideration which should be extended to all men who have fought bravely for what they considered the cause and their country. So, as General Cronia prepared to make that winding march up the hill from the tiny port of Jamestown at St. Helena, his men fully expected to be subjected to humiliation. Instead, there was silence. No jeering nor rude remarks as the Boers passed the crowds of islanders on their way to Deadwood Camp, which was inland. Being escorted along with Cronier was his wife, whom Lord Roberts had allowed to accompany her husband. The Boer general and his wife were accommodated at Kent Cottage, not in Deadwood Camp itself, and were surrounded by a strong military guard that changed every day. Of course, Cronier was a general and for once it was the Boers demanding special attention. Whereas their culture was supposedly based on a democratic principle of equality, Pete Cronier insisted that proper respect be shown to his rank and that a mounted guard should be provided. That was going to create a few challenges. There were precious few horses and no mounted troops on the island. Subsequently, Governor Sterndale, who despite his name was regarded as fair, gave orders for some of his men of the St Helena Volunteers to receive riding lessons. Then arose the other challenge, which was that these were island men. None had ever sat on a horse, let alone ridden one. As we know, riding a horse in an organised fashion does not take a few lessons. Historian A.J. Nathan has provided an extremely funny explanation of what happened next. So, as soon as they learned to sit in the saddle without falling off when the horse trotted or galloped, The group was sent to Kent Cottage to mount guard and to escort General Cronier whenever he went riding. Cronier was itching to get moving so these poor mounted guardsmen had just arrived when he decided to inspect the Boer Prisoner of War Camp on Deadwood Plain. That was 10 kilometres away over hilly country and for men who've just learned to ride, it was a terrifying experience. Cronier took off at a gallop with the mounted guards struggling to keep up. When he arrived at the camp, the guard dismounted while he made his inspection. After an hour, Cronier was satisfied and declared it was time to head back to Kent Cottage. The general leapt back on his horse, but there was an embarrassing situation that now developed. None of the British guard were able to mount their horses whilst holding a rifle. The Martini Henry is a hefty nine pounds, just over four kilograms, and that was unloaded. To add to the British patrol's humiliation, they had an audience of 500 Boers who were all experienced riders and watching closely. So there, on the windswept plain of St Helena, the comic opera developed Act II, which was when General Cronier ordered some of the Boer prisoners to hold the guards' rifles whilst they were assisted into their saddles. Amidst hearty cheers, the general left the camp followed by his crestfallen mounted guard. St. Helena became part of the Boer soldiers' narrative, with its isolation and cool climate, mists that would be whipped up in minutes from the sea, and the mere fact that they were marooned on a rock in the middle of the Atlantic. St. Helena, unlike most islands of the world, remained uninhabited until the age of European seafaring and was discovered by the Portuguese in 1502. It had no native population, but it did have precious supplies of fresh water vital for the ships heading to the Spice Islands and heading back. The fact it's surrounded by thousands of square miles of ocean meant escape was virtually impossible. Yet, on February 2nd, 1901, President Paul Kruger's grandson, P. Elof and three other Boer prisoners made a determined attempt at a small inlet on the island called Sandy Bay. Just an ironic note here, Sandy Bay in South Africa used to be known as one of the few nudist beaches in the country. However, In 1901, fully dressed boers collected a quantity of provisions and then seized an old fishing boat from its owners at St Helena's Sandy Bay. There was a fight, and the fishermen ran off with their oars. The boers climbed into the boat and tore up the floorboards to use, then paddled out to sea. But they got nowhere. The boards were useless, and the boat was beached back at Sandy Bay once more. Elof then tried to bribe the fishermen, but they had already sent a messenger to Deadwood Camp. Yoff and the three others were rearrested. That put paid to escape attempts for a while, until two Frenchmen, who had been sent to St Helena along with Cronier's Boers, tried to swim to a nearby ship at Rupert's Bay. One gave up when a guard aboard the ship saw them, but the other tried to swim around to Jamestown but was caught on the steps of the port. There was an outbreak of bubonic plague in South Africa in 1901, something which is not well known. So all ships that arrived from the Cape were under strict quarantine regulations with no passengers allowed to disembark nor cargo to be landed. Watching the ships at anchor were two boers and despite the enormous odds against them, both swam from the wharf in Jamestown to a waterboat anchored offshore. They set up the waterboat sails and slipped away and were not seen until the next morning. A signal station at Ladder Hill then spotted the sailboat and a steamboat called the Beagle was sent to retrieve the two. The men were brought before St Helena's magistrate. They said they didn't steal the boat, they were just trying to escape. Both were fined five pounds and sent back to Deadwood Camp. The camp itself was surrounded by three separate barbed wire fences and guarded outside by soldiers who patrolled 24-7. There was little trouble at this camp, but as more prisoners arrived, pressures began building up. Those who caused trouble were usually marched to a large fort isolated on a nearby hilltop called high knoll. The British were extremely tolerant at this camp. There was only one serious incident in the three years it operated when a sentry shot a prisoner one Saturday night. It emerged at the hearing that the Boers had been pelting the guards with stones, sticks, tins and other missiles and this sentry had been hit in the face. He was admonished but no further action was taken and the Boers stopped pelting sentries with stones. The British also allowed the Boers to build their own houses after the inmates tired of sharing tents with dozens of other men. Some of the prisoners saved money and constructed cosy little huts out of paraffin tins soldered together and lined with wood or cloth. The senior officers and commandants were also allowed to live outside the camp in comparative freedom. Then in 1902, there was a serious outbreak of enteric fever or typhoid, which was brought to the camp by prisoners. That passed. After the British brought in skilled nurses and additional medical support. But by 1902, a serious difference of opinion had emerged amongst the Boers in Deadwood Camp, a difference that would occur in all POW camps around the world. Many of the Boers had begun to give their names to the British as those in favour of peace. Eventually, as fights grew more violent amongst the Boers, the British created a separate facility for those who preferred peace, and it was called Peace Camp, or simply Number two. Then as time passed, General Pete Cronier himself made the journey to the castle at Jamestown to take the oath of allegiance to the British in mid nineteen oh two. He was castigated by some of his own soldiers who threatened to attack him for what they saw as treachery. The British mounted guard was eventually protecting him from his own people rather than ensuring he did not escape. Cronier eventually left St Helena for the Cape on 22nd of August 1902, along with 994 other Boers who'd also sworn allegiance to the British Empire. It's not really remembered now, of course, but the treatment of Boers and St Helena was top draw. In fact, Germans who fought for the Boers wrote an emotional letter to Governor Sterndale when they left, which read, In the first place, we want to express our heartfelt Thanks for the kindness and consideration shown to the POWs. The kindness shown to one and all by all the people of the island, with a few exceptions, is a fact that will be long remembered and cherished by them as a bright spark in the gloomy days of captivity at St Helena. Eventually, St Helena was overflowing, and the British then set up POW camps in Salon, and each region selected camps were created for the Boers who wanted to swear an oath of allegiance and other facilities for troublemakers. In Ceylon, there were a few, and the six internment camps there led to 22 attempted escapes. None ended successfully, although Deneus Reitz mentioned one in his book, Commander. We now know that the single success was a man by the name of J.L. de Villiers. The Boers in Ceylon were paid for their labour, and some had brought transvaal gold with them, which they exchanged for the local rupee. Dia Talawa camp was the largest in Ceylon. Dia Talawa was ringed by a deep trench and barbed wire entanglements, and locals came to call it Boer Town. The facility was divided into two lagers or settlements. One nearer the railway station was dubbed by the prisoners themselves as Krugersdorp and was occupied by Transvaalers. The burghers from the Orange River Colony occupied the other, which they christened Stainesville after President Stain. By the end of the war in 1902, There were 9,000 Boer POWs in India, 6,000 in St Helena, 5,000 in Ceylon, 3,000 in Bermuda, and 1,700 in South Africa itself. 140 Boers died in India, mainly of disease. Amongst those in India was Commandant T.F.J. Dreyer, Commandant of the Potsdam Commander, who served under General Smuts and was captured during the daring raid of 300 miles through the British lines in 1901. And a single prisoner, J. L. de Villiers, is known to have escaped from one of the 20 camps in India, from Chichonopoly camp. Dressed as a local, he made it to the French colony at Pondicherry and returned to South Africa via France and the Netherlands. Another prisoner, Commandant Erasmus, who was a Johannesburg solicitor, took an interest in Indian history, philosophy, and literature. He then gave a series of lectures on the subject to the Transvaal Philosophical Society which were published later by Gandhi in his newspaper Indian Opinion. So there was generally a feeling amongst Boers that while they were exiled, it was not abusive. In Bermuda, more than 5,000 Boers were housed in camps on five separate islands. Darrell's island hosted those who believed the war should continue and was the most closely guarded, with the other islands holding between 600 and 900 men. It was in Bermuda that the British had the most trouble containing Boer prisoners. Two escaped. David Stephen Duploy, who served under Cronio, managed to swim to the steamship Trinidad and was then registered as an immigrant in New York in July 1901. It then emerged there had been a mutiny by Boers in June. The New York Times reported an attempted mutiny by 900 Boer prisoners of war en route to Bermuda on the ship called the Armenian. The British managed to bring the prisoners under control, but the event led directly to Duploy's escape. What's really interesting at this point is to note how the Boers who escaped and headed to the United States wanted to become U.S. citizens. Another who managed to make his escape from Bermuda was W.J. Pinar, who swam two miles out to sea where a Dutch ship picked him up and took him to America, where he too became a citizen. I wonder where their descendants are today. There were over 56,000 Boer prisoners taken during the war, as I said, and one small group of 900 managed to avoid the British They were the Boers who had crossed over into Mozambique in September 1900 to escape Lord Roberts' columns. These 900 were shipped to Portugal, where they remained until the end of the war in 1902. So, and the end of the war is hastening towards all. Remember last week we left the Boers who were debating whether or not to surrender and had managed to pull together a short document which avoided the main topic of surrender, independence of the two Boer republics. The first round of Boer discussions at Vereniging began on the 15th of May 1902 and ended on the 17th. So the Vereniging Convention decided they would offer Kitchener a compromise deal in which the republics would enter into a defensive alliance with Great Britain but remain independent. Five representatives had been chosen by the delegates at Vereniging. Louis Boerter, Jansmatz, Skulkberger, Christian de Wet, and Barry Herzog. No president stayed because he was too ill and lying on a sickbed in Krugersdorp. These five entrained for Pretoria and arrived on the 18th of May and then began their negotiations with Kitchener at 10 a.m. on the morning of the 19th of May. They laid their new proposal before him, and Lord Milner was there. Both gave it short shrift. Grant it, Kitchener said later, and before a year is over we shall be at war again. They wanted a definitive answer to Chamberlain's insistence upon the Middleburg proposals, which was complete surrender of independence. The Boer Commission, particularly Smuts and Herzog, spent quite a bit of time using various legal arguments and logic to try and talk Kitchener and Milner around, but without success. The meeting adjourned for lunch, and during the break, Smuts had informal discussions with the British to open the way to negotiation on some other basis than that authorised by the Vereniging Convention. This was extremely tricky to get right. Had the Boers empowered five men who are now hell-bent on denying them their own independence? Well, not exactly, because Christian de Bet was one of the five, and he was a bitter ender without compare. It's amazing to think that this war, these deaths, this gory tale, was to come down to two words, surrender and independence. The Boers refused to entertain the phrase surrender in any document, and the British refused to entertain the phrase independence for the Boer Republics. After lunch, Kitchener and Milner returned to the table with a new draft document and hidden in the anaxia was a blunt declaration of surrender by the Boers. Of course, Smuts and his colleagues were horrified. The blunt statement was too much even for this budding statesman and for a moment or two it looked like negotiations were deadlocked. Sitting alongside Kitchener was Milner, who very much wanted the talks to collapse. As we know, he had a plan for South Africa and that did not include the Boers. He wanted the fork to disappear and be superseded by good quality British stock. But Kitchener, who had already shown a hitherto unrecognised ability to negotiate with his enemies, was not going to allow either Mulner or the five Boer commissioners to leave. So he suggested that the British and Boer lawyers should sit down together and try and draft the terms of peace, where the phrases surrender and independence may be agreed to through some kind of process. It's this part of a process that reminds me of the 1992 Conference for Democratic South Africa, or CODESA. I've mentioned it a couple of times. Instead of either side sitting apart and drafting documents that neither side would accept, they decided to put the best legal minds together in one room to try and find a solution. For two days then, Milner and his legal advisor on one side, and Smuts and Herzog on the other, tussled with each other. Very little could be dragged out of Milner, and we know why. Smuts was highly aware that sitting opposite him was a man who he had earlier in the war suggested was motivated by malicious intent when it came to the future of the Boers. We have here the makings of an intricate process that involves body language, eyes, quick thinking, and delicate personal management skill. And like Cadessa, one of the most pertinent aspects of the negotiations was the future of black South Africans. After the two words that may not be mentioned, There were three main issues before the British and the Boers. First, the future of the Cape rebels. The British regarded these as traitors who could not be forgiven as the Cape was a British protectorate, and citizens who rebelled were hanged or shot. The British were happy to reconsider and to rewrite the laws to allow the Cape rebels who had been captured to return home, whereas they had initially refused to entertain any relief. Secondly, the amount of money available to rebuild South Africa. The scorched earth policy adopted by Kitchener had left the land, denuded, dystopian plains covered with the bones of dead sheep and cows, buildings razed to the ground and wild animals lurking across the landscape. Great Britain had offered a million pounds towards rebuilding, but were now happy to increase this to three million. The Boers considered this acceptable. But it was the third main question that has echoed the loudest through history. How would the vote and franchise be extended to black South Africans? Back in February 1900, the British cabinet had agreed with the then Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, who said, There must be no doubt that due precaution will be taken for the kindly and improving treatment of those countless indigenous races of whose destiny I fear we have been too forgetful. For the Boers, the answer was very simple. No way. One of the causes of the war was the question of voter franchise for English-speaking whites. The Boers feared being overrun in their own territory by eight in the Transvaal and Free State. Blacks in these two territories were regarded as labourers, not as citizens. And in this, they were supported ironically by the majority of English-speaking white colonials, who tended to use phrases like, when the blacks have evolved, but the very idea of majority rule was anathema to the Boers. By avoiding this matter entirely, all involved in the negotiation process, Smuts, Britta, Herzog, Berger, De Wet, Milner, Kitchener, were actually dooming a country to go back to war with itself at some point. A dose of collective amnesia appears to have overtaken the British cabinet back in London. They were overwhelmed by the fact that this little war had turned into a big war that they wanted ended at all costs, and the price paid would be by black South Africans as the British effectively allowed a minority group in a self-governing Boer state to determine whether or not the majority group of black Africans should get the vote. So next week we'll complete the negotiations as they ended on May 31st. What a journey we've taken. All the heat, the smoke, the blood, the terror, the pride, success, failure. It all ends with a few sheets of paper upon which an entire country's future is based. Thanks to Sam in Florida for your continued support and donations, and to Sean Munger, who's known as the historian who sees the future. He made contact after hearing the podcast episode on History by Hollywood, where I chatted to the wonderful Andrew and Martin about the movie Zulu Dawn. Also to Ryan and Edmund for your great stories describing how your relatives were involved in the Boer War. Thanks for sharing. So if you can, please rate the podcast on iTunes if you've got the time, you can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham or send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. O oh, bring me terug naar jouw Transvaal, daar waar my Saree woont. Daar onder die mild is bij de groen door een boom. Daar won my Saree Mare. Daar onder die mild is bij de groen door een boom.